as Tony said, we are uh, in this series leading into Easter that we are calling Before Calvary. And what we're doing is we're looking at these Old Testament stories that tell us a lot about Jesus and what he did. And in fact, not only connect to Jesus, but connect to us and our future as well. And as Tony said before, this week we want to look at the story of the Passover, what happened when God rescued the children of Israel out of slavery in Egypt and how that happened and, and, and what that means for us. But before we get there, you need to understand a little bit of context because in the Bible, context is everything. And if you don't understand the historical context or, or the literal context in which the story is taking place, you might miss some really important parts of the story or the story might kind of be a, a little offensive to you in some ways that you, if you just understood their world a little better, it would make more sense. And so there are two things I want to make sure you understand. And the first has to do with meat, okay? Now, if I wanted to enjoy a steak for dinner tonight, um, what I would be, need to do is I would need to go to Jewel and pick my steak, right? That's pretty simple, pretty easy. But, but in, in these days, we're talking about you know, a couple thousand years before Jesus in, in Egypt where the children of Israel were slaves, if you wanted meat, you had to kill it, okay? That's the, that's the only way you were gonna get meat. Um, I have a good friend who uh, grew up in the suburbs of Detroit. I, I grew up here in Schaumburg, you know, so for me, this was where you got meat from, right? Same thing for my friend growing up in suburban Detroit. Uh, we were at seminary together, and then his first call was to a rural church in southern Missouri. And he had been there about a month, and uh, uh, they had announced that the next weekend, the men's club was doing their annual sausage dinner. And uh, so one of the guys from the men's club came up, and they said, Pastor, uh, we're going to make the sausage next Saturday. You want to come help us make sausage? And he's like, sure, that'd be great. You know, get here at 6.30. We're going to make sausage. He says, all right. And he pulled into the parking lot that Saturday morning, and he saw they had set up a little pen, and there were two live pigs in the pen. He called me that afternoon and said, I am never eating sausage again. <laughs> right? And yeah, that would have been me. But, uh, but again, so, so, for, so you got the context. It, when, in the story that we're going to look at today, if they wanted meat, they had to kill it. And so that killing something for meat was just a regular, everyday part of everybody's life, okay? So you got that. The second one of these, the, this context is a little more dark. It's a little more troubling. And that is, in, in these days, child sacrifice was common in the world, okay? Now, that's really hard for us to get our brains around. Uh, but, of course, not among God's people, not among the children of Israel. They did not practice child sacrifice. But, but among the Egyptians where they were slaves, among the other pagan nations in the world, it was not uncommon at all for you to sacrifice one of your children to one of your gods. Children were not seen as human beings until they reached a certain age. And so for, for a family to give up one of their children to the local gods, that, that was not uncommon at all. So keep that in mind as we dive into this story a little bit. So, so again, the story we're looking at today is the story of God rescuing the children of Israel out of slavery in Egypt. Now, they had been slaves in Egypt for 400 years. So generation after generation after generation of slavery. Now, what did it take in the United States to get rid of slavery? It took a civil war, didn't it? So, so to end 400 years of slavery in Egypt is not going to be simple. It's going to take some pretty cataclysmic events for that to happen, and God knew that. And so he calls this guy named Moses, and he sends Moses to Pharaoh with these instructions, 
stop slavery, let the slaves go. They're my people, and I want to lead them to a new place where they can live and be free. Now, how do you think Pharaoh reacted to that? Not well. And so we're told in the Bible that there was this series of plagues that God sent against the people there to try to convince Pharaoh that he needed to listen to God, that he needed to obey and set the people free. And so uh, he turned the Nile River into blood. They sent plagues of frogs and gnats and flies. The livestock died. The people became sick with boils. There was hail that destroyed the crops. There were locusts that ate the rest of the crops that were left after the hail. All these things, one after another. And we're told um, the reaction was interesting. Some of the time Pharaoh would just say no. Other times, Pharaoh would say, okay, all right, stop the plague, I'll let him go. And then when the plague was done, he'd go, nope, changed my mind, not going to let him go. But plague after plague after plague are sent by God, and finally God says, I've got to get really serious here. And so God says this, the last plague, he says, I'm going to send the angel of the Lord, and he's going to pass through Egypt, and he is going to kill the firstborn child in every house. Now, now remember, child sacrifice. That was a a regular part of what the Egyptians would do. So the killing of a child for a god wasn't necessarily big news for them. But the firstborn child, the most important child, the the oldest child, the the best child. Can you tell I'm a firstborn, by the way? (laughs) No, no, in in all seriousness, the threat here was that God was going to choose the child instead of them choosing the child. And, and, uh, and, And now, here's one other thing to keep in mind. All these plagues have been sent to convince the Egyptians to set the Hebrew people free, and yet the Hebrew people are caught up in these plagues too, aren't they? It's not just the Egyptians that have a plague of locusts. The Hebrews do too. God's people do too. Each one of these plagues is affecting them as well. But when it comes to this last plague, God says to them, here's a way out for you. He says, what I want you to do is I want you to take a lamb and I want you to kill that lamb and prepare that lamb for the meal and then take some of the blood from that lamb and spread it on your doorposts. Spread it on the lintel that goes across the top and on the side doorposts like we have on our doorway over here. Spread that blood there, and then when that blood is there, the angel of the Lord, as he goes through Egypt, when he sees that blood on your house, he will pass over your house. You will be safe. No one will be harmed in your house. That was God's promise to them. Now, again, I picture this, okay? They got their lamb chops at Jewel. Uh, they made them nice and rare, and they took some of the blood that was on the plate after they cooked them, and they put that on the doorframe. But that's not what happened, right? This is what happened. And, and in fact, God said to them this. He said, here's what I want you to do. I want you to choose a lamb, and not just any lamb. It should be a lamb without blemish or spot. In other words, get the cutest lamb you can find. And then he said this. I want you to take that lamb and bring it into your home and live with it in your home for 14 days. Now, those of you that are parents that have kids, what do you think happens when this guy moves into your house for two weeks? First of all, I'm guessing he gets a name within the first hour, right? It's Lammy, right, or whatever it's going to be, you know? It's Herbert, whatever, I don't know, whatever, you know? And, and I mean, basically, this lamb becomes your pet, And then on the 14th day, they kill the lamb. 
and they prepare it for the meal, and they put the blood on the doorpost. God was trying to help them understand that even though he was sparing them this plague, there was a cost. This wasn't just easy for God. This wasn't just free. This thing that God was doing to rescue them was hard. It was difficult. There was a cost. And then God told them this. He said, I want you to remember this day. I want you to commemorate the way I set you free from slavery in Egypt. Because by the way, this plague worked. Pharaoh finally set them free. He said, I, I want you to remember this day by celebrating it and calling it Passover. And every year, I want this day to be for you a memorial. Now, that's an interesting word. In the original language, the original Hebrew, that word can be translated two ways. It can be translated as remembrance. In other words, God is telling them every year, I want you to celebrate this meal. And by doing that, I want you to look back at what I did and how I rescued you. But there's another way this word can be translated too, and that's as the word sign. In other words, it's a forward-looking word too. And what he's saying to them is, not only do I want you to, when you celebrate this Passover, to look back at what I did to you, but I want you to remember that what happened there, what is just a sign of a greater reality that I am going to do for you in the future. So fast forward 2,000 years. Jesus is here. He's been living as a carpenter up in Nazareth for many years, and now he's going to begin his earthly ministry, and there's this guy named John the Baptist, and he's standing there with some of his followers, and he sees Jesus, and he says, look, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Now, if you've been hanging around the church for a while, like I have, you're kind of used to being Jesus called the Lamb of God, right? But they weren't used to that. No one had ever been called the Lamb of God before. John is looking at Jesus and he's saying, that Passover lamb that we have every year, here he is. That sign that Passover's been pointing to for thousands of years, here he is, it's Jesus. And sure enough, three years later, it's Passover time again, and it's the night before Jesus is about to be crucified and betrayed. And he, he, he tells his disciples, I, I can't wait to celebrate Passover with you. And he sends them into Jerusalem. And he says, you're going to go to this certain house and say to the guy at the house there, the teacher says, where is my guest room where I may eat the Passover with my disciples? And he will show you a large upper room furnished and ready there prepare for us. And so Jesus gathers together with his disciples to look back at how God rescued his people out of slavery in Egypt and to look forward to the next day. Because while Jesus is there with them, he takes some bread and he breaks it and he said, this is my body which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And then he takes the cup of wine, the, the fourth cup of the Passover celebration, the cup of blessing, and he says, and, and drink from this all of you for this is my blood that's shed for you for the forgiveness of sins. And the next day that comes true. And Jesus is arrested and he's beaten to within a few inches of his life and his bloody body is hung on a cross. And just like there was blood on the cross piece and on the doorframe of their houses, now there's blood on the cross piece and the central piece of the cross. Only it's not the blood of a lamb, now it's the blood of the lamb of God, Jesus himself who takes away the sin of the world. And so the Lord's Supper for us has become a new Passover. 
We look back every time we have the Lord's Supper together and we remember what Jesus did for us on the cross and we look forward to what he is going to do again for us because we know that that day is gonna come when we will stand before his throne in heaven free from all sin and death and struggle. The apostle John was given a vision of heaven. Saw all these people gathered around Jesus in the throne in white robes and and, and his tour guide says, who are they? And, and John says, I don't know. You know who they are. And he says, these are they that have, are coming out of the great tribulation, what you and I go through every day, the struggles of everyday life. He says, they have washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. That's our future because of Jesus. It's a cool story, huh? You know, this, this Passover thing happens way back thousands of years ago in Egypt, and there's this cool symbolism of the lamb and the blood, and Jesus ends up fulfilling that symbolism, and, and, and he becomes the Passover lamb for us. He becomes the one who sheds his blood so that we could be passed over, so that we could be safe and set free, and someday in heaven, we're going to experience that fully and completely cool story. But what does it mean for you and me right here today? Well, let me ask you this. If, if, if right now in this moment, God took a look at you and at your life and he really examined it, he got out his microscope and, and he looked at every little single thing that you do and every little single thought that you think, you know, the stuff that, that you'd be ashamed to tell anybody you just thought and you're glad that they can't read your thoughts or the things that you've done that you think you've kept secret that no one knows about. If God looked at all of that right now, if he looked at the sum total of your life, how would you feel? I don't know about you, but that's a frightening prospect. But it's true. You see, God does know every thought. God does see everything we've done. The stuff in our past that we wish we could forget, it's there for God to see. But folks, here's the amazing message of Passover. That, that just like those children of Israel spread that blood over the door frame, that meant God passed over their house. And, and just like we've been washed clean in the blood of Jesus through what he's done for us, we are forgiven, it means that when God looks at you and me this morning, he does not see your sin. He sees the perfect life of Jesus. That stuff that you're ashamed of that you want to forget, God has forgotten it. The Bible says as far as the east is from the west, that's how far I have removed your transgressions from you. The Bible says God looks at you and me and says, I will remember your sins no more because of the blood of Jesus right here, right now, when God looks at you, he sees that blood of his son. He does not see our sin. My first call as a pastor was to uh, St. Andrews in Park Ridge, Illinois. And uh, my office was kind of right near the worship center. And uh, every Wednesday, I would hear the kindergartners coming down to the worship center for their chapel service that they did. And uh, the kindergarten teacher would have them actually sing a song while they were walking through the hallway. And I always loved that. You know, I'd hear them singing, so I'd go out and I'd stand by my office door and I'd wave to the kids while they walked by and they were singing. It was really cool. So this one Wednesday, I'm sitting there, and I hear them coming down the hall, and I hear them singing, and this is what I hear them singing. Jesus loves me when I'm good, when I do the things I should. Jesus loves me when I'm bad, even though it makes him sad. And I jumped out of my office and I ran to the hallway and I went, no, <laughs> don't sing that. 
The kindergarten teacher was not real happy with me, by the way. I'm like, don't sing that. That's not true. The, the gospel message is that when Jesus looks at you, there's nothing you could ever do that would make him sad because he's already paid the price for your sins. You've already been washed clean in the blood of Jesus. When Jesus looks at you, he smiles and he's happy. That's the gospel. That's the good news. And folks, that's true. You and I don't have to feel guilty. We don't have to worry. We don't have to, to feel like, oh yeah, God loves me, but I do make him sad sometimes. That's not the gospel. The gospel is you and I have been covered in the blood of Jesus. We've been washed and made clean. When God looks at you right now, this moment, he sees a holy, perfect, forgiven child of God. That's the gospel. You know, next a week from Friday is going to be Good Friday. And um, every year about this time, I pull a book off my shelf. It's one of my favorites. Um, it's one of the only books, hardcover books I actually still read. Otherwise, I just use my, my e-reader, right? Uh, but, but I've been reading it every year for a number of years now. It's called Six Hours, One Friday. And, and the author kind of takes us through what happened on that Good Friday of 2,000 years ago when Jesus gave his life for us. And here's what I love about the book. He doesn't just tell the story. He relates it to our everyday life. And he says there are these anchors that we need in, in the crazy world in which we live to keep us anchored to that cross. And by the way, that's why I read it every year, to keep me anchored to that cross. And he says these are the three anchors. This is what the cross means for us. First of all, it means that my life is not futile. Do you ever feel like you're just taking up space? Kind of wonder why you're here. Why did God make me? Well, because of Jesus, our life isn't futile. It has meaning. It has a purpose. And he also says this. He says sometimes because we fail, we make mistakes, we feel like those failures are, are fatal, that, that God isn't just unhappy with us, but that God's done with us. He's through with us. And he says that's not true. Because of the blood of Jesus, my failures are not fatal because Jesus paid for them there on the cross. And finally, he says this. Because Jesus died, I know that my death isn't final. I'm gonna live forever. Folks, the blood of Jesus Christ cleanses us from all our sins. The blood of Jesus takes away our shame and our guilt. God passes over the sins that he paid for on the cross and gives us the gift of life. Now, can I get an amen for that? Amen. amen. Let's bow our heads and let's pray.